0: Please rise. Court is now in session. All
1: rise. All rise. Is it legal to? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of The Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty.
2: And I'm Farrah Fight.
1: Throughout this series, we've concentrated on what we might call adult law, laws for grown-ups. But there's another kind of law that affects those of what's called sometimes tender age, juveniles.
2: Juvenile law, it's called It's a broad field that covers custody, crime, abuse, neglect, and delinquency.
1: Might be called juvenile law, but it heavily involves adults. And we have a special guest who will explore the dimensions of juvenile law with us today.
2: Meet Natasha Hastings. She's the chief legal counsel with the St. Charles County Juvenile Office and formerly an attorney with the state's children's division. She's a juvenile justice teacher at Lindenwood University and Maryville University and also is the co-chair of the Missouri Bar's Juvenile Courts and Law Committee. We're glad to have you today. Thanks, Nadasha, for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Let's start by first defining a juvenile. So who falls under juvenile law?
3: Uh, The juvenile court has jurisdiction for new cases up until a person turns 18 years of age So we will file on cases in which a juvenile committed a delinquent act or is being abused or neglected up to and including age 17. For abuse and neglect cases, the juvenile court can keep a child under its jurisdiction and in foster care until age 21. Uh, It's important to note that the age of majority in Missouri just recently changed in 2021. Previously, at 17, juveniles were considered an adult and their cases were sent to adult criminal court. But beginning in 2021, the age of majority was raised to 18. So now juveniles are considered juveniles until the age of 18. All right.
1: How does juvenile law differ from other laws?
3: So juvenile law consists of both child protection, which is abuse and neglect, and also delinquency, which consists of law violations and status offenses. So for delinquency, a status offense is an act that if it was committed by an adult, it wouldn't be a violation of the law example of uh, some status offenses include truancy, which is failing to go to school, or run away, running away from home. A law violation is an act that if it was committed by an adult, it would be considered a crime. So that would include any adult criminal acts. So in juvenile delinquent act, we use the adult criminal code. And so for juveniles, they're charged with the same crimes when with law violations that adults are charged with. So crimes like robbery, burglary, rape, stealing, tampering, or assault. And so I've had people who aren't familiar with juvenile law, they've asked me, oh, is it a felony of your juvenile to shoot off fireworks? And the answer is juveniles are charged with the same crimes using the adult criminal code that adults are charged with. However, juvenile law differs because juvenile law, we work in the best interest of the child. Therefore, we look at treatment, juvenile courts are treatment courts and we look to provide treatment and services to children who are accused of and who commit crimes. Unlike the adult criminal courts that are punitive and they're there to punish adults who commit crime. Uh, We also use different terms in juvenile delinquency cases. So we use terms like you admit to the allegations in the petition or that the allegations in the petition are found to be true versus an adult criminal court where you plead guilty or you're convicted of or you're found guilty of certain offenses.
1: Are there juries in juvenile courts?
3: There are no juries. All of the cases are bench trials, which means all of the trials are in front of the judge who makes the decision as to whether the allegations and the petition are true. The burden of proof is the same with delinquency, juvenile delinquency cases, as it is in adult criminal cases in that the judge must find that the allegations that are alleged that they find that they're to be true beyond a reasonable doubt.
1: Is there a reason why they're bench trials and and not a jury trial of some kind, especially for more serious offenses?
3: There is an option for more serious offenses that a juvenile can be what's called certified and their case can be transferred to adult criminal court. And in those circumstances, there would be a jury that would be present. For juvenile delinquency cases, the the juvenile cases are more confidential. And so it's important that the people that are involved in the juvenile delinquency cases, that it is limited because the any a juvenile who is found to commit any juvenile offenses, those are typically offenses that will not show up on a adult criminal record.
2: How does a court decide if someone should be tried as a juvenile or as an adult? You were just highlighting that you can be charged as an adult, even if you're a juvenile. How how does that process work?
3: There's a specific statute, which is Missouri law, and that's section 211.071. And that lays out the process in which a juvenile case can be heard in adult court. And so there's a lot of people who aren't familiar with juvenile law who think that we may get a case tomorrow and the next day we can just mark that as something that the juvenile is certified and should go to adult court. But that's not how it works pursuant to the statute. The statute requires that there must be what's called a certification hearing to determine whether the child shall be certified to stand trial as an adult or if the case should be handled in juvenile court. So there are certain offenses uh, pursuant to state law that require a certification hearing. The juvenile office may file for a certification hearing, but may recommend that the juvenile not be certified because the law requires that when there's certain offenses that are charged, that we have the certification hearing. All other offenses besides these mandatory offenses, the certification hearing is something that's optional. So any party, is what's called a permissive certification. So any party can file and request that a juvenile that is over the age of 12, would request that a um, certification hearing be held for a juvenile. So there's certain offenses though, like I said, that require a mandatory certification hearing. Those offenses include offenses that you would typically expect that might be handled in adult criminal court. So those offenses are first degree murder, second degree murder, first degree assault, rape in the first degree, sodomy in the first degree, first degree robbery, manufacturing of a controlled substance, or the juvenile has committed two or more prior unrelated offenses that are felonies. And so in those cases, there shall be the certification hearing. So what a certification hearing consists of is it's a hearing in front of the juvenile court judge. It would include the juvenile, the juvenile's parents, the juvenile's attorney, the deputy juvenile officer, and the attorney for the deputy juvenile officer. And at that hearing, the juvenile officer is required to prepare a report for certification, which sets forth their recommendation as to whether the juvenile is a proper subject to be dealt with under the provisions of the juvenile court, and whether there are reasonable prospects of rehabilitation within the juvenile justice system. And so the DJO, the Deputy Juvenile Officer, would prepare this report that would be submitted at that hearing. And The recommendation of the juvenile office is based on certain criteria that's that's laid out in that that statute that i referenced Uh, the criteria as to whether a juvenile shall remain in juvenile court or shall be transferred to adult court uh, these criteria is what makes up the recommendation or the basis of the recommendation for the juvenile office so those criteria include the seriousness of the offense alleged and whether the protection of the community requires transfer to adult court, whether the offense alleged involved viciousness, force and violence, whether the offense alleged was against a person or property with greater weight being given to offense against a person, especially if there was personal injury that resulted, Uh, whether the offense alleged is part of a repetitive pattern of offenses, which includes the child may be beyond rehabilitation under the juvenile code, the record and history of the child, including the experience with the juvenile justice system, other courts, supervision, commitments to juvenile institutions and other placements, uh, the sophistication and maturity of the child as determined by consideration of his or her, her home and environmental situation, emotional condition and pattern of living, the age of the child, the program and facilities available to the juvenile court and considering disposition, whether or not the child can benefit from the treatment or rehabilitated programs available to the juvenile court and include that any racial disparity information. And so ultimately these criteria are what make up the recommendation for the juvenile office that they include in this, what's called a certification report and they submit to the judge. But ultimately whether a juvenile is certified and as an adult and the juvenile's case is transferred to the adult court is always the decision of the juvenile court judge. So it's important to note that the recommendation that the juvenile office makes is not always followed. It, it comes down to, it's the deci- decision of the juvenile court judge after a full hearing on the matter.
1: But it's still a subjective decision. Yes. There's, there's no way to be objective about this stuff.
3: It's based on the 10 criteria that I just outlined that are in the statute. And so um, while some of it's subjective, Uh, there are things that are included, like the prior history of the juvenile, what services have been provided to that juvenile. So we look at what is the extent of the involvement of the juvenile court? Are there any in the juvenile office? Are there any additional services or anything else that the juvenile office feels that this juvenile can benefit from? Or have all services and has all treatment been exhausted that there's really nothing that the juvenile office feels that there's no additional treatment or programs or services that can be be provided to this juvenile. And at that point, the juvenile office would recommend that based on these criteria, would make the recommendation based on the criteria.
2: When we think about the structure of the criminal justice system, most people think of prosecutors, defense lawyers, you know, and the state is bringing charges against the accused person. And juvenile law, is it that same structure, but then the juvenile office is sort of an independent third party that's assessing and providing resources to the accused minor?
3: So the juvenile office is separate from the juvenile court. And the juvenile office, we, are, we file the petitions within the juvenile courts for both the child protection side and both the delinquency side. But we also have um, an informal side where we work with juveniles informally for those less serious crimes, or for the status offenses, so we to ensure that they're provided services or therapy. We have different programs that they can attend to really rehabilitate and to provide that treatment that the juveniles may need to ensure that they don't reoffend.
1: Is there a public defender involved in juvenile cases very often?
3: Yes, and so in St. Charles County, once we file a petition in court, our public defenders are automatically appointed to represent the juveniles. So I believe it in the last couple of years, I believe it was in 2000, October, 2018, there was a juvenile defense team that is a subdivision of the public defenders in which public defenders who specialize in juvenile law represent juveniles in uh, juvenile cases. And when it comes to child protection cases, juveniles are always represented by a guardian ad litem who appears at all court hearings to relay and represent what they believe is in the child's best interest. And that differs from an attorney. A guardian ad litem differs from an attorney because an attorney is there to represent the child and their wishes, where a guardian ad litem in abuse and neglect cases, they are there to represent what's in the child's best interest. So may they, so while they're required to inform the court, my client, this child that has been abused and neglected would like this, I do not believe that is in their best interest because.
2: So someone, I guess, looking out for them with more experience and expertise in these types of matters.
3: The Children's Defense Team, they do have expertise in juvenile law matters. And although in juvenile delinquency matters, although we are charging crimes pursuant to the adult criminal code, there are many differences in the juvenile law system. So it is important to have Um, an attorney who's well-versed and is able to provide representation to juveniles in juvenile law and has that experience that is required.
1: So are punishments in juvenile court generally less severe than they would be in adult court for the same trial, for for the same crime?
3: So that's where the juvenile court differs from adult criminal courts. Juvenile courts, they don't order punishments since they're treatment courts and they're focused on rehabilitation and they're not punitive. So, after a juvenile is uh, what we call adjudicated, so in adult uh, criminal terms, that would be once they're found guilty or which, once they plead guilty, a disposition hearing is held. And so, I guess in adult criminal court, that would be like sentencing. And um, the juvenile then is either placed on formal supervision rules and conditions, and they're ordered to complete certain programs, certain therapy, provide restitution to the victim while also being closely monitored by their assigned deputy juvenile officer and to ensure that they complete these programs and they receive the treatment and services that they need. So not only do we not see them back at the juvenile court, but that they don't offend as an adult. Another option is a juvenile, if they're beyond the services that the juvenile office can offer or the services that can be offered within the community, um, another option is a juvenile can be committed to the Division of Youth Services. That's an agency in Missouri that allows for juveniles to be placed in facilities that ensure the protection of the community and of citizens while also providing these juveniles with needs-based services to ensure that the juvenile can be rehabilitated and can be reintegrated into the home and the community and that they don't, they don't reoffend after their time at Division of Youth Services, which is often referred to as uh, DYS.
1: Are these more like uh, group homes for young people rather than the old reformatories that we used to have?
3: Uh, for the Division of Youth Services, it, I would say it's more like a residential facility that allows the juveniles to obtain the, the treatment that they need and the services that they need while being removed from the community to ensure the protection of the community.
1: What happens to their education while they're going through this?
3: They, juveniles are provided education while they are at the Division of Youth Services. When they are on what we call formal supervision, they receive education usually through going to their home schools because they are placed at home and monitored there. Prior to a trial or an adjudication hearing, Juveniles can be placed in detention. We do have a detention facility um, in St. Charles County, and in detention, we have teachers who come in and teach the juveniles daily from the St. Charles City School District.
2: Are there certain punishments that are just not allowed? They're off limits for juveniles?
3: Again, in juvenile court, juveniles are not punished, but if they are certified and they're still under the age of 18 and they go to adult criminal court the U.S. Supreme Court has held that juveniles cannot be sentenced to death as it is cruel and unusual punishment. And also the the U.S. Supreme Court has held that a juvenile cannot be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, as that would violate the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. And the reason for that is due to the immaturity of juveniles, it diminishes their culpability to commit a crime. But also studies have continued to show that Juvenile brains are not fully developed. And so they're not always, I think a lot of people with teenagers or who know teenagers would know this, is they don't always make rational decisions. And to hold them accountable for an irrational decision that they made when they, they were very young, uh, the, the US Supreme Court has found to be cruel and unusual punishment.
1: This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Legal Legalese, that means we asked Judge Wolfe to translate the lawyer's language into English.
0: Judge? Legalese. Today's very useful discussion of juvenile court proceedings prompts me to go back to the beginning of the recent modern era of juvenile courts. I speak of the landmark United States Supreme Court decision in Henry Galt nearly 55 years ago. Referring to the era before its Galt decision, the majority opinion in that case said, the early conception of the juvenile court proceeding was one in which a fatherly judge touched the heart and conscience of the erring youth by talking over his problems, by paternal advice and admonition. Close quote. Under that beneficial-sounding principle for juvenile courts, what happened to 15-year-old Gerald Galt in 1964 in Gila County, Arizona, would be rather shocking to uh, those of us who have lived for our entire careers under the due process guardrails set in place by the United States Supreme Court in Gerald Galt's case. The facts briefly. The Sheriff of Gila County, Arizona, took young Gerald Galt and a friend into custody after receiving a complaint from a neighbor about a lewd and offensive phone call. At the time Gerald was picked up, his parents were at work, and the authorities took no steps to notify the parents that their son was in custody. After the mother returned from work, she sent Gerald's brother out to look for him. And he found that Gerald was in the county juvenile detention home. The parents were informed that a hearing was to be held the next day. The petition alleging that Gerald was delinquent was not served on the parents. It alleged only that, quote, said minor is under the age of 18 years and is in need of the protection of this honorable court and that said minor is a delinquent minor, close quote. The petition asked for a hearing and an order regarding the care and custody of the minor. The deputy juvenile probation officer, who was also in charge of the detention home, provided a formal affidavit in support of the petition, but he had no direct knowledge of Gerald's behavior. The day after he was taken into custody, Gerald, his mother, his older brother, and two probation officers appeared before the juvenile judge in chambers. Gerald's father was not there. The neighbor who complained about the lewd call, the complainant, was not there. No one was sworn under oath at this hearing. No transcript or recording was made. No memorandum or record of the substance of the proceedings was prepared. After that hearing, there was a further court proceeding, again without testimony, where the juvenile judge found Gerald to be a delinquent and committed him to a juvenile institution until he was 21 years old. We should note that an offense involving a lewd phone call if committed by an adult, would have subjected the adult back then to a fine of $5 to $50 and perhaps a couple months in jail. But Gerald as a juvenile could be confined as he was for as long as six years until his 21st birthday. In the case of a juvenile committed to an institution, Arizona law did not allow for an appeal. Gerald's lawyers challenged his confinement with an application for a writ of habeas corpus, a traditional and ancient way of challenging the legality of a person's confinement. The Arizona Supreme Court said that Gerald had not been deprived of due process of law, but the United States Supreme Court took the case and ultimately disagreed. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision was the turning point for the rights of juveniles in U.S. courts, according to the National Center for Juvenile Defense. It was the first time that the Supreme Court held that children facing delinquency prosecution have many of the same legal rights as adults in criminal court, including the right to an attorney, the right to remain silent, the right to notice of the charges, and the right to a full hearing on the merits of the case. The U.S. Supreme Court held that much of what happened to Gerald Galt violated his right to due process of law as guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, where the juvenile is taken from the custody of his parents, and committed to a state institution during proceedings in which the juvenile court had virtually unlimited discretion. The U.S. Supreme Court held that juveniles must receive meaningful due process before being found delinquent and committed to an institution, or subjected to other corrective measures. Those are rights that courts must respect for all who are charged with crimes, and they apply to minors even though the juvenile court judges and officers say they are doing civil work and acting in the best interest of the minor child. After the Galt decision, states rewrote their juvenile codes to put in state laws and court rules that due process rights, such as notice of charges, proof of the conduct charged, and the rights that guarantee a fair and impartial hearing before the government can curtails a juvenile's liberty, rights that are embedded in the system for prosecuting adults. From an historical perspective, we note that the Supreme Court made the Galt decision in the legal hothouse of the 1960s an era when many of our assumptions about our legal system faced challenges. The majority opinion in Galt said it bluntly. The condition of being a boy does not justify a kangaroo court. We know that the brains of teenagers, especially boys, are not fully developed, especially when it comes to making wise decisions. Teenagers need second chances. We who are long past those great teen years know how we develop good judgment. From experience, real-life experience, And how do we get that experience? Well, I suppose, from bad judgment. But what about our own fully formed adult judgment? Over the years, as perceptions of juvenile criminality go up, even when crime statistics go down, we wonder. We may wonder whether the justices of the nation's highest court, presumably appointed for their great judgment, will adhere to the ideals of procedural justice that drove the Galt decision. We know that many young people need help, But if juvenile courts are left free to overdose on paternalism without the constraints of real due process protection, we may not get what our society needs. Take Gerald Galt as an example. Gerald may not have had the best judgment. He was only 15 years old when he allegedly misbehaved. But how well-tuned was the judgment of the juvenile court judge who committed him to a state institution for up to six years without hearing testimony? One of them was an adult, the other was not. How good was the judgment of each of them? Gerald Galt, as it turns out, was not a bad kid. After he grew up a bit, he served 23 years of distinction in the United States Army. In 2007, 40 years after the Galt decision, Gerald spoke about his life. He said the experience in the juvenile institution made him angry and mean, and he spent decades trying not to be angry and mean. So let's be careful about going back to the good old days. If relaxed due process standards will be back on our current judicial courts, increased paternalism will return. We might want to apply the skepticism that many people express in modern-day political saying, quote, we're from the government and we're here to help, close quote. That skepticism can be applied to today's difficult juvenile problems. It will take good judgment on the part of adults to strike the right balance between too much help and too little. But if the requirements of due process are relaxed, you may feel like kangaroos hopping back. This is Mike Wolf, here to help, but I'm no longer from the government.
1: Legalese. Now I've heard of some court judgments that sentence a juvenile, a person who is, I guess a juvenile, maybe tried as an adult to spend X years in a juvenile facility until they're 18 and then they're transferred to an adult prison. Is that correct?
3: So... Uh, Juveniles can be sentenced to life, but they must have a meaningful opportunity for release after considering certain circumstances, including their youth. There's also what's called dual jurisdiction, which allows a juvenile to complete part of their stay in juvenile court and then to have the within the Division of Youth Services. And then once they reach a certain age, then they can be transferred to adult jail. But those circumstances, a juvenile is usually certified after certification hearing and dual jurisdiction is something that would happen within the adult criminal court at the discretion of the prosecutor and the adult criminal judge and the attorney for the juvenile slash adult.
1: So that system is designed to protect somebody who's 15 or 16 years old from being put into a bunch of, with a 35 or 36 year old prison inmate.
3: Is yes, that basically the theory? Yes, that's correct. And also because what's been found, this, what studies have found on brain development with juveniles, that their brains are not fully developed and which makes it difficult for them to make rational decisions. And we have a lot of juveniles. We look a lot at the recidivism rate, which means the likelihood of a juvenile who offends to reoffend. And the recidivism rates for juveniles are, are very low. And a lot of that I'd speculate, and I believe the studies would show, is is due to the brain not being fully developed and juveniles being unable to make those rational decisions because, you know, at the end of the day, they are kids.
2: If A juvenile has an adjudication hearing. I think that's the right terminology, the legal terminology. That's correct. um, And they are set up on a, you know, a holistic treatment plan, if you will. But they are about to age out. Does that mean all the treatments end when they, you know, are no longer within those age frames or do the services continue with them until the court is satisfied?
3: So a majority of, there are programs that are offered uh, within the juvenile office and a lot of them are grant funded. And so the services that can be provided through those programs are pursuant to any of the provisions in the grant. But a lot of the services that are provided are through the community. And so the juvenile office will link that family up with a therapist that can hopefully continue or can provide referrals to continue that therapy. And so the juvenile office doesn't just work with the juvenile. We work with the juvenile's family because these are kids. And it's so important that family dynamic and um, to ensure that everyone is receiving the services that they need so that these kids can be successful.
1: Just off the top of your head, Natasha, can you think of who the, the youngest juvenile offender is that you've heard of in Missouri's system or the, the youngest one perhaps that you've dealt with? Just to give us some context of...
3: For the delinquency side, for delinquency, we our office, uh, we do not file petitions in court for juveniles who are uh, under the age of 12 years old. We do receive uh, what's called referrals, so that's anytime there's a, a law violation that is submitted from law enforcement, and so we do we do receive those for varying reasons. And so um, when we receive those, we look at the the nature of the fence. Usually, they're very minor crimes. And first, before we can work with with any child, we have we have to find the fence to be legally sufficient. And so if it's legally sufficient, and they are younger. We do have our informal unit process those. And so we've also really reached out to our schools and our law enforcement community to kind of discuss what's an appropriate referral to SIG. And so, you know, we have seen where a elementary school kid is referred for stealing, for stealing a muffin from the cafeteria. And so we've really reached out to and partnered with our law enforcement agencies and our, our schools to see what can we do within each of our systems to better serve these kids to find out why are they stealing these muffins? Is there abuse and neglect at home? Is this really something that should be a school disciplinary issue, which would differ from a law violation where the juvenile office needs to get involved. So really figuring out how can we provide services to juveniles and particularly young juveniles who we don't want them to, to start their involvement with the juvenile office at an early age. And so we 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 don't file to answer your question. So we don't file on any status offenses, so truancy or runaway. Those aren't something that are filed, what we call formally. So a petition is filed in front of the court. We typically file on only those offenses that are um, are felony offenses or sex offenses are the ones that we're that we're working with. And so you know those juveniles are anywhere from the age of. Know, 13 to, to 17.
2: Are there services in Missouri that specialize in prevention and early in event intervention when it comes to juvenile law?
3: Yes, there are. So both for uh, child protection and for delinquency. And so for child protection, those prevention services and those early intervention resources really come from Children's Division. Many know it as DFS, even though many years ago uh, it changed to Missouri Children's Division. And so they are the agency that really provides services and tries to work with families. Whenever any families come to their attention via abuse or neglect hotline, they meet with those families, they provide resources, and there's a myriad of of, of resources that they provide to them to help with whatever issue. So there may be a neglect referral due to a dirty house. So they'll they'll try to connect those families with therapy, with other services, and, and just see Uh, what the needs are and how they can assist. They also have other services that they can offer like intensive in-home services, which is through a a separate entity where they come into the home and they work with the family one-on-one to try to prevent the children from from entering foster care and to see how they can really assist families. For delinquency, the juvenile office prevention and really uh, early intervention Uh, would be handled mostly through our informal unit. But again, we have to first have a legally sufficient referral that comes to our attention, and then we can work with the family informally. So if we can, for the low-level offenses and for all status offenses, we work with the family informally within the juvenile office. And so we'll have what's called an informal adjustment conference where they would come in and they would uh, meet with an assigned deputy juvenile officer to, to talk about, you know, The fence, and to talk about what services they can really provide that family without us having to file a petition and have that formal record, and without having to go to court. And we also have within St. Charles County, we have a truancy unit that works closely with the schools. Whenever there's truancy referrals or educational neglect referrals, that works with the the school and works with the juvenile and works with the family and really. We'll call the family to ensure that they've gotten to school, remind, remind the family that the child should be getting to school and, and work with the child and really see why, why is that child not attending school. And, you know, usually there's a reason and there's some kind of therapy or some kind of services that are needed. And so the juvenile office helps provide those links to the family and assist, assist the family to make sure that the juvenile gets the services that they need.
1: These these age children sometimes get into a situation with bullying. We hear that discussed quite a bit these days. Is bullying a, a juvenile offense, and is it something that your office would handle in one way or another?
3: So with juvenile offenses, we file we follow the adult criminal code. So there's no besides uh, the status offenses. There aren't separate criminal offenses that just apply to juveniles only. But the Missouri law does require that every school district have an anti-bullying policy. And so that's pursuant to section uh, 160.775. And uh, many of these bullying issues are issues that are occurring uh, within the school. And so the school uses their school disciplinary policy and they use their anti-bullying policy in order to address these issues. And so they they don't always come to the attention of the juvenile office. There are no state laws that are specific to bullying or cyberbullying, but a juvenile could be charged with harassment. And so, that, again, that's pursuant to the adult criminal code. So just like a, an adult can be charged with harassment, a, a juvenile could also be charged with harassment. But if we received a referral to our office that for harassment that has allegations um, that uh, you know appear to be bullying and that is legally sufficient, then that would be handled through our informal unit again. And so if we receive a referral that is legally sufficient for harassment that has those bullying allegations contained within, then that's something that the St. Charles County Juvenile Office and I believe many others would handle through their informal unit. And so our informal unit also, in order to ensure that juveniles receive the the treatment that they need and the services that they need, as I mentioned earlier, we have grant funding for certain programming. And so we partner with other um, organizations in order to ensure that these programs are offered. And one of the organizations that we partner with is the Megan Meyer Foundation, which which is an organization that's focused on anti-bullying and bullying prevention. And so that's a way that if a juvenile is referred to our office for harassment and it's a legally sufficient charge, then that's a way that we would be able to address that bullying and have the juvenile attend these, these programs that are offered through the, uh, the Megan Meyer Foundation.
2: If I recall correctly, the Megan Meyer Foundation, the mother who initiated that program also had advocated at the statewide level for anti-bullying Legislation in honor of her daughter's memory. That's correct. Yes,
3: it's a, it's a really great organization, and uh, Tina Meyer is is in charge. She founded that organization, and so that's something that we we partner with the Megan Meyer Foundation. But it, I believe that a lot of schools partner with her as well, and they provide uh, the bullying programming and presentations within the school.
1: Several times while I was still covering the state Senate, I remember discussions of changing the laws on sex offenders so that someone who, who is convicted of or involved with what is considered a sex offense in adult court would not have that still on his record as he moves out of being juvenile up to adults. For example, as it was often cited, a 17-year-old guy and his 16-year-old girlfriend uh, are in their car and the police happen to show up. And the, the young man is charged with something as a juvenile. But does that sex offense then continue on in his life? And is he considered a sex offender as he becomes an adult? Or on the reverse she would she still be a sex offender?
3: And so we do follow in, in juvenile court, in the juvenile office, we do use the adult criminal code. And so the offenses that adults, the sex offenses that adults can be charged with juveniles can also be charged with. And so there are certain offenses that if they are charged with and they're found to be true, then they, the juvenile would be on the adult sex offender registry. There's also certain offenses that a juvenile can be charged with and if found true that a juvenile is on a juvenile sex offender registry. And so those, but the the juvenile sex offender registry um, is obviously more confidential and wouldn't carry through and To until adulthood. And so something that is that another way that juvenile law differs is we have what's called certain filing considerations. So as the juvenile office, we have to work within the best and what's in the best interest of the child. And so we look at whenever we're filing charges, you know, a prosecutor would look at and say, what's the highest offense that I can charge that I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt? And so as an attorney for the juvenile office, it's more difficult because we don't look for what's the highest charge that we can charge. We look at what charge can we prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And then we also look at certain filing considerations. And that would be one of them. If we're gonna charge a, a juvenile with rape in the first degree, then they're gonna go on the adult sex offender registry. And so that's, that's a lifetime consequence for something that a, a juvenile did you know, again, when they were young and when their brain wasn't fully developed. So that's a, that's a filing consideration that we take into account whenever we are filing these petitions. And you had also mentioned a, a 17-year-old who's having, I guess, consensual sex with his 16-year-old girlfriend. We do receive some of, some of those referrals, and that's where it becomes difficult with using the um, adult criminal code to charge uh, juveniles with these sex offenses, also with the statutory offenses. And so when you're looking at statutory offenses, you automatically think that it's someone who is an adult who's much older with a child. But if you do have a 19 year old who has a girlfriend who is 17 and they're having consensual sex, well, well, technically that would be statutory. But if you're looking at the adult criminal code, that would be a statutory offense, right? Because she's a juvenile and she can't consent. So that's what we look at with our filing considerations. And that's why someday it's my hope that there is a separate juvenile code that's separate from the adult criminal code because the adult criminal code was written for adults and it presumes that you have an adult and a child. And so it doesn't take into account some of those, those very tricky things. We also have, we receive referrals to for juveniles who are sending nude photographs of themselves. And then if there's a a child who's female who is sending it and the male child is requesting it, uh, we have received referrals for some of those for for sex offenses. And those are difficult for us too, because they're same age, same age children, really who's the victim and and who should be charged. And uh, we've received referrals for, you know, like distribution of child pornography based on that. And so that's what's very difficult about Juvenile law is not only what we charge because we don't charge the highest offense. We have to work within the best interest of the child, and we have to consider all these other implications that may occur, like a lifelong sex offender registry in our offenses, but also it gets murky because, again, the adult criminal code, that's written for for adults, but we're using that to charge juveniles.
1: So this is still kind of a policy that's very much in flux, isn't it? It, it just it just sounds like it's still unsettled.
3: For now, we use the the adult the yeah. adult criminal code. It's just my my hope that someday that there is a, a a separate juvenile code that lists all the criminal offenses, but is specifically tailored for juveniles. But when it comes to the filing considerations that that I mentioned there is what's called the Missouri Juvenile Office Performance Standards. Um, it was mandated by the Missouri Supreme Court in 2017. And it's a very detailed listing of certain standards that the juvenile office the must consider and must follow. And so within there, it it li- really lists the, the filing considerations when looking at how to charge a juvenile. And so You know, like I said, with adult criminal cases, they look at what's the highest charge that we can charge that we think we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt based on the evidence. But for the for the juvenile office, these juvenile office performance standards that were mandated by the Missouri Supreme Court, they say before before you file a formal petition and when you're deciding how you're going to handle a referral and if you do file what you're going to file, you shall consider the following implications. So you have to look at the sufficiency of the investigation and the admissible evidence, the age of the juvenile. You have to look at the impact of the adjudication on the victim and what the victim wishes. Uh, We have to look at the availability and appropriateness of diversion or other informal services as an alternative to filing that formal petition and taking it to court. Uh, We have to look at whether the juvenile is amenable to other alternatives, if they're willing to participate informally before we file that petition. We have to look at their history of their participation in those informal and diversion programs. We have to look at whether the extent of the implications of us moving forward with that adjudication and that trial and the petition in court, whether that outweighs the extent of the harm caused by the act alleged. We have to look at the requirement of restitution, uh, the impact of factors relating to the juvenile's education, including the Safe Schools Act, the impact of the required registration as sex offenders, as I previously mentioned, and the decisions made for juveniles in the same situation. So we want to ensure that all juveniles are are treated the same way. And we're handling juvenile all juveniles the same way, whether or not they have a family who is engaged and willing to, to help them and really get that support based on a juvenile who has a family who's really not engaged and who hasn't been proactive in the case. And so there's a lot of filing considerations that, that we really have to look at. And, you know, we had discussed the the requirement of registration as a sex offender on both the uh, adult sex offender registry and the juvenile sex offender registry. We hadn't discussed uh, the Safe Schools Act, and so the Safe Schools Act. As soon as we file a petition, we're required certain offenses. We're required to notify the schools that we have a petition filed. But there's also certain offenses that once we file, just while the petition's pending, a juvenile is is not allowed to enroll in or attend a public school. And so we have to consider that when we're filing these certain petitions. And so if the juvenile is not in detention and receiving educational services through there, but we file a petition alleging something that's a Safe Schools Act violation that doesn't allow them to, to go in school, is it really in their best interest to proceed on a charge where the juvenile cannot is not permitted to ever re-enroll in school again? No, it's not. So, there's all these filing considerations that the juvenile office and the juvenile office attorney has to take into account for juveniles because ultimately we're acting in the best interest of the child.
2: With everything that you just outlined, it feels as though your job and the job of your peers throughout the state is a very weighty, important job in helping, you know, set a course so that these juveniles can hopefully be rehabilitated and live a happy productive life. Is that fair to say? <laughs> it
3: is. And that and that's really our goal is to make sure that we're acting in the best interest of of the juveniles while also ensuring that they are rehabilitated and they uh, don't commit another crime and that at the same time that the community is um, protected and that the juveniles also are also hold, held accountable for their actions.
2: I did want to ask too about juvenile records. You talked about how they are a bit more private or closed. Do those records follow the juvenile into adulthood? Or in most cases, if you've had an encounter with the juvenile court or juvenile law, is that typically left in your past if you have no further infractions?
3: Typically, juvenile records are closed. So, uh, But there are certain times that they're not. So if they are um, certified to stand trial as an adult, then those those would not be closed. Um, there are other times uh, military has access to some of those offenses. Once a juvenile is charged with a felony, they're fingerprinted, and so, you know, they typically the juvenile record is is supposed to be closed. And that's why if you're ever filling out an application as a juvenile and you have an offense where you were adjudicated, and it asks you have you ever been convicted of a crime, uh, a juvenile can answer no because they've been adjudicated on an offense. And so there are protections that are are given to juveniles, again, because juvenile brains are not fully developed and, you know, we really want to ensure that juveniles who are already held accountable and are provided treatment for something they did as a juvenile, that there's not those lifelong implications that really follow them into adulthood.
1: You've used the phrase about juvenile brains not being fully developed several times during our discussion. Is there ever a time in a juvenile proceeding when uh, someone will ask that the juvenile be evaluated to determine the development of their brain and whether their brain has reached a point where they must be held responsible on a higher level?
3: Yes, and so if there's any concerns for competency, there can be either the juvenile office or the attorney for the juvenile can file a motion for a competency evaluation, just like um, you could in adult criminal court. And anytime, there's also the attorney for the juveniles. There have been times that I've had trials with them where they've called experts to come in and talk about brain development, and you know, ask, the ju- ask that the juvenile judge rule a certain way based on the studies with with brain development. And also, you know, a big component of this too that I think a lot of people don't realize is A lot of the juveniles who are involved in the delinquency side of juvenile law, there's an extensive trauma history. And so, you know, there's studies have been done as to an extensive trauma history with a lot of these juveniles who are committing crimes. And so a lot of these juveniles, again, not all of them, but a lot of them have been abused or neglected and have um, had just a life, had a life of trauma. And so, That's something that you know we also take into account, but something that sometimes the attorney for the juvenile will have an expert on trauma come in and testify as to you know what trauma does to the brain and and decision making. I, I heard something once that was if you knew the story behind the reason for the behavior, you know, it would break your heart and you wouldn't be angry. And so that's what I see in a lot of these cases is and again, not all of them, but a lot of juveniles who are committing crimes um, just to kind of know their story and their trauma history. It just makes me happy that they are involved in the juvenile court system where we can rehabilitate them and try to give them that treatment instead of punish them. Because, you know, a a majority of these juveniles have been abused, neglected, or gone through so much trauma that, you know, no wonder they're here.
2: Is there any bit of advice that you would give to a juvenile or a family member of a juvenile who is having to interact with the juvenile office for a reason?
3: So the juvenile office, um, we offer, like I said, the informal unit, we offer informal services. And so I would just tell a family um, to, to take advantage of those services of therapy or any programming that's offered to relate, to assist, to assist their juvenile, because you know, it's, it's normal as a, a teenager growing up to kind of need extra assistance either through your parents or through therapy or through different programs. We have one program that, that's really neat in St. Charles County, which is Boxing Therapy with a boxer who provides, you know, therapy. It's non-contact boxing therapy, but there are, there are good programs that can really assist juveniles. And so I would say, you know, take advantage of the services that are offered to you. But also if you do have questions about juvenile law, to to be sure, you can always consult an attorney.
1: Anything else about juvenile law that we haven't touched upon that you think really we should uh, we should emphasize to folks?
3: The spanking question. <laughs> oh yeah, well, this,
1: this, this gets into child abuse. This, yes,
3: child this,
1: this, abuse. Because the courts do get into child abuse from time to time. And and so I guess a question arises. Uh, what are the limits on what parents can do to punish the child, for example? And that includes spanking. Can, can I, if I still had children in the house, could I spank them?
3: And, you know, the question really is, but people ask me, is it, is it still okay to spank a child? Is it legal to spank my child? And I'm going to give the lawyer answer, which is it depends, right? So spanking could be considered abuse. And so abuse is defined by Missouri law as any physical injury, sexual abuse, or emotional abuse inflicted on a child other than by accidental means by those responsible for the child's care, custody and control, except that discipline, including spanking that's administered in a reasonable manner shall not be construed to be abuse. So then the question becomes, what is considered a discipline in a reasonable manner? And so the, the courts have really given a latitude and discipline so long as it's reasonable manner. But reasonable manner is difficult to define, but it's really discipline that does not result in harm to the child. And so the courts have looked at a variety of factors like the amount of force that's used. They've looked to whether there are marks, injuries or bruises to a child 24 hours after the spanking results. And so so it depends. But the American um, Academy of Pediatrics, they also oppose um, corporal punishment, which they define as non-injurious, open-handed hitting with intention of modifying a child's behavior. So this, when they say corporal punishment, they mean spanking that doesn't result in any injury. But the American Academy of Pediatrics have, their recommendation is based on several studies and scientific evidence that show that children who are spanked actually develop more aggressive behaviors have increased aggression in school, and they have increased risk of mental health disorders and cognitive problems. And so, this means that besides the risk that you could injure your child when you're spanking them, you may have a child that bruise, bruises bruises uh, easily, or you may accidentally leave a mark, or you may accidentally uh, bruise your child. Spanking has also been found to be ineffective in discipline. And it's opposed by pediatricians who are actually experts in child abuse. So while the law does allow for spanking as long as you don't leave marks and it's uh, in a reasonable manner and you don't use too much force, it's something that I would just say it isn't worth the risk.
2: Thanks for sharing that advice. I, I had no idea how the law held to that. It, yeah. And it, I think as time goes on, when spanking used to be an, a norm, maybe, it is becoming less and less, as evidence showed that you shared, considered a a productive means.
3: And I think, you know, some people will say, well, I was spanked or, you know, my my mom was spanked and we turned out fine. But um, the studies have just shown that it's, you know, it's not effective. But also spanking, as I said, can be considered physical abuse. And if it's hotlines and it comes to the juvenile office, uh, your child could be removed from your legal and physical custody and placed in foster care based on spanking, if there's marks, then it's determined that it's not in a reasonable manner. So, you know, I just say, you know, now if we know better, we should do better.
1: Thank you, Natasha. Well, thank you for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal Two special production of the Missouri Bar, and our thanks to Natasha Hastings for helping us understand this important part of our legal system.
3: I can't talk about juvenile law, juvenile law is my passion, but I can't talk about juvenile law without doing a PSA for abuse and neglect. And so, if if you see something, if you think that your neighbor, or you think that a friend or family member is abusing or neglecting their child, if you see something, suspect something, please say something. You can reach out to the child abuse and neglect hotline. The phone number is 1-800-392-3738 and that's 1-800-392-3738. Your identity will remain anonymous, so they may ask who you are, but your identity is confidential. It will not be revealed to, you know, the person that you're reporting. Uh, It's best to be overly cautious to ensure that a child is safe and that the matter is looked into by Children's Division, and so Children's Division will investigate that manner, and if the child is not being abused or neglected, nothing will come of it but if the child is being abused and neglected you know the child will be protected based on your report so please if you see something you say something by calling the hotline if there is ongoing abuse or neglect and you've called it once please call it again sometimes we have children who are in dirty homes and the houses are cleaned up and after a hotline is made and then they're living in filth again and going to school dirty and being bullied And unless that hotline is called, then Children's Division is not aware that there's an issue again. So please, again, if you see something or you suspect any kind of child abuse or neglect, please call the Child Abuse and Neglect Hotline at 1-800-392-3738. Excellent.
2: Thank
1: you very much, Natasha.
2: Thank Thank you so much.
1: Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it.
2: Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. On June 8,
4: 1964, 15-year-old Gerald Galt and a friend were taken into custody by the sheriff of Gila County in Arizona. The detention was based on a complaint of a neighbor, a Mrs. Cook, who alleged that Gerald and his friend made an obscene phone call to her. Gerald's mother was not informed of her son's detention and made a desperate search of the city. She ultimately found Gerald at the children's detention home. A hearing was held the next day. The probation officer filed a petition with the juvenile court, making no specific findings of fact, but simply concluding that Gerald was a delinquent minor. At the hearing, Gerald and his mother appeared, as well as the probation officers. Mrs. Cook, the complainant, was not there. No transcript or recording was made. No memorandum or record of the substance of the proceedings was prepared. Conflicting testimony was provided about what happened and what actions were done by which parties. At the conclusion of the hearing, the judge said he would, quote, think about it. Gerald was taken back to the detention home and would not be sent to his home for days. On June 15th, a second hearing was held. Once again, there were inconsistent accounts of what happened from Gerald and the probation officer, with the judge providing his own unique recollection of what had been said at the previous hearing. Once again, Mrs. Cook was not called to testify despite the request of Gerald Galt's mother. At this June 15th hearing, a referral report made by the probation officers was filed with the court, although not disclosed to Gerald or his parents. The report stated Gerald had engaged in lewd phone calls. At the conclusion of the hearing, the judge committed Gerald as a juvenile delinquent to the state industrial school for a period of his minority. The period of his minority would be over six years. The Galts attempted to appeal, but that option was not allowed under Arizona law. They asked the Arizona Supreme Court to address the situation, but it declined to do so. The case was ultimately heard by the United States Supreme Court. In its eight to one decision in the 1967 case of re Galt, the Supreme Court ruled that Galt's constitutional rights were violated and extended several protections in the bill of rights to juvenile court proceedings. In his opinion for the court, justice Abe Fortas recognized the reason that juvenile courts developed in America. He also acknowledged the necessity for juvenile courts to be free from the limitations placed on adult courts so they could fashion strategies that would result in rehabilitation for juveniles. However, Fortis identified a negative to the freedom accorded to juvenile courts, writing, Juvenile court history has demonstrated that unbridled discretion, however benevolently motivated, is frequently a poor substitute for principle and procedure. The absence of substantive standards has not necessarily meant that children receive careful, compassionate, individualized treatment the absence of procedural rules based upon constitutional principle has not always produced fair, efficient, and effective procedures. Departures from established principles of due process have frequently resulted not in enlightened procedure, but in arbitrariness. Justice Fortas saw arbitrariness, arbitrariness in this case, writing, a boy is charged with misconduct. The boy is committed to an institution where he may be restrained of liberty for years. It is of no constitutional consequence and of limited practical meaning that the institution to which he is committed is called an industrial school. The fact of the matter is that, however euphemistic the title, a receiving home or an industrial school for juveniles is an institution of confinement. In which the child is incarcerated. In view of this, it would be extraordinary if our Constitution did not require the procedural regularity and the exercise of care implied in the phrase due process. Under our Constitution, the condition of being a boy does not justify a kangaroo court. And what rights did the court envision for juvenile court proceedings? One was notice of charges. Fortas wrote, Due process of law requires notice of the sort we have described, that is, notice which would have been deemed constitutionally adequate in a civil or criminal proceeding. It does not allow a hearing to be held in which a youth's freedom and his parents' right to his custody are at stake without giving them timely notice in advance of the hearing of the specific issues that they must meet. Another right identified by the court was assistance of counsel. Fortas wrote, a proceeding where the issue is whether the child will be found to be delinquent and subjected to the loss of liberty for years is comparable in seriousness to a felony prosecution. The juvenile needs the assistance of counsel to cope with problems of law, to make skilled inquiry into the facts, to insist upon the regularity of the proceedings, and to ascertain whether he has a defense and to prepare and submit it. The child requires the guiding hand of counsel at every step in the proceedings against him. In addition, the court looked to the rights of confrontation cross-examination, and protection against self-incrimination. The woman who made the accusation never appeared in court to provide her testimony and to be cross-examined. Similarly, Galt was not informed of his right to remain silent under the Constitution. As Fortas wrote, neither Galt nor his parents were advised that he did not have to testify or make a statement or that an incriminating statement might result in his commitment as a delinquent. Fortas concluded by saying, It would indeed be surprising if the privilege against self-incrimination were available to hardened criminals, but not to children. Justice Fortas and the majority of the Supreme Court seemed to enthusiastically apply constitutional rights to juvenile proceedings. The concurring opinion written by Justice Hugo Black expressed a greater degree of uncertainty. Black recognized the cost of applying the Constitution when he wrote, The court here holds, however, that these four Bill of Rights safeguards applied to protect a juvenile accused in a juvenile court on a charge under which he can be imprisoned for a term of years. This holding strikes a well-nigh fatal blow to much that is unique about the juvenile courts in our nation. While Black recognized the unfortunate consequences of formalizing the juvenile courts, he regarded as even more unacceptable the continued accumulation of unchecked power by the juvenile courts. He wrote, Young Galt was arrested and detained on a charge of violating an Arizona penal law by using vile and offensive language to a lady on the telephone. If an adult, he could only have been fined or imprisoned for two months for his conduct. As a juvenile, however, he was put through a more or less secret informal hearing by the court after which he was ordered or more realistically sentenced to confinement in Arizona's industrial school until he reaches 21 years of age. Thus, in a juvenile system designed to lighten or avoid punishment for criminality, he was ordered by the state to six years confinement in what is in all but name a penitentiary or jail. Where a person, infant or adult, can be seized by the state, charged and convicted for violating a state criminal law, and then ordered by the state to be confined for six years? I think the Constitution requires that he be tried in accordance with the guarantees of all the provisions of the Bill of Rights made applicable to the states by the 14th Amendment. Application of the Constitution to a complex set of facts rarely produces results that can be characterized as purely good or bad. The Galt case demonstrates this. While the court's decision to extend constitutional rights to juvenile courts can certainly be seen as a victory in a nation that values civil liberties, it is also the case that the formalization of the process required by the Constitution removed some of the flexibility that was an essential part of juvenile courts. Galt reminds us that the application of constitutional rights in any given case exacts its own set of costs. In our human world, perfect decisions even from an institution as impressive as the Supreme Court, do not exist.
2: There are some resources you might want to check out, whether you're wanting to learn more about juvenile law or whether you have other legal questions. We have those resources available to you at missourilawyershelp.org. That's missourilawyershelp.org. You can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances.
3: Nothing further.
1: You've been listening to Is It Legal Two, A regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of The Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty,
2: And I'm Farrah Feit.
1: Thanks for being
0: with us.
2: Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal To podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.